The Apostle Paul recognized that if the world of his day was to be reached effectively, it would be through a ministry focused on the great cities of the ancient world. In each of those cities, house churches would serve as a base for the expansion of the gospel, and we see that played out in the great ancient metropolis of Ephesus. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Ephesus was the city of the great temple of Diana. It was one of the churches of Revelation, and of all the cities of importance in Paul's day, Ephesus was preeminent. In that place, Paul spent more time in ministry than any other. Keep listening as Dr. Boyce describes the city in which Paul would establish a work that would prove to be a pattern of how we might minister in the urban areas of the modern world today. In 1978, Dr. Roger Greenway, a recent professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary and a former missionary in various parts of the world, wrote a book called Apostles to the City, Biblical Strategies for Urban Missions. Very timely book in view of the shift of the world's populations to the cities, and it's helpful to us at this point in our study of Acts because Roger Greenway rightly focused at the end of the book on the strategy of the Apostle Paul. Some of his studies had to do with the Old Testament. He looked at Jonah and his ministry to Nineveh. He studied Nehemiah, Jeremiah. He looked at New Testament figure like Barnabas. But then at the end of this book, he focused, as I said, quite rightly on the Apostle Paul because of all the characters in the Bible, in this area, in the area of urban evangelization, an articulated and well thought out approach to cities, the Apostle Paul undoubtedly heads the list. Now I sense as I study Acts that Paul's strategy evolved. That's to say, at the beginning, he hadn't worked it through carefully. He had some ideas, no doubt, but he started out overland, visiting one community after another. He didn't seem to be particularly focused on the cities, at least not major cities. But as time went on, and as he circulated through the Roman Empire, began to speak here and there, he recognized that if the world of his day was going to be reached effectively and throughout, it would have to be through a ministry focused in the great cities of the empire. And so as time went on, we see him developing his strategy, focusing on the cities, and as I indicated in earlier studies, spending more and more time in them. All of this, of course, is very, very relevant to our time today. We live in a world of cities, and the task that we face, bringing the gospel of a supernatural redemption through the work of Christ to secular people is precisely the task that the Apostle Paul faced then. Now, Roger Greenway points out in his book that Paul had certain basic strategies, and we ought to keep them in mind. First of all, he had a message, and his message was always one of personal repentance and conversion. Sometimes when people think of advancing into new areas today, they think they have to change the message. 
We're going into the cities, so we have to say what city people want to hear. Or we're going on television, we have to say what television audiences are programmed to expect. If they want entertainment, we have to entertain. If they want their ears tickled, we have to tickle their ears. The Apostle Paul never did that. Apostle Paul taught the nature of sin, the need for repentance, the work of God in Christ, and the indispensability of conversion. That is, turning from sin to follow Jesus Christ in faith, believing in him not only as one savior from sin, but as the Lord of the universe and the Lord of one's life. So that's the first thing the Apostle Paul always kept before his mind. And we've seen it already throughout these accounts of his missionary journeys. Then secondly, the Apostle Paul always planted churches. He was not just an evangelist who somehow was remote from the task of planting churches. When he went into an area, that was his goal. If he settled in Corinth, he wanted to have a church there in Corinth when he left, and he wanted to have people in charge of it. That's something we need to remember for our cities as well. Because for one thing, you see, when you establish a church, you model what it is you're speaking about. Oh, verbalization is important. That's why it's important to have books in which the doctrines are explained and tracts in which the gospel is popularized and radio programs that break new ground and television perhaps that people watch. But the verbalization alone is not enough. Verbalization must be followed by actualization. And people in the cities particularly must be able to look and say, yes, not only there is somebody who is speaking the gospel, but there is somebody who is living it. And you have the opportunity to do that in the fellowship of Christian churches. I notice also not so much what we read here specifically concerning Paul's strategy, but more as it's reflected in his letters written later, that much of this work was based in what today we would call house churches. Sometimes, as here in Ephesus, Paul had a lecture hall. I guess that would correspond to what we do in churches on Sundays, where he taught regularly, only in his case it was throughout the week as well. But where the churches were established, it would seem, the churches were established in the homes of people. So here and there throughout these cities, there were little communities of believers that met together to worship God and to model the gospel in their obedience to Christ. And we need that in our cities. And then a final strategy, not only did Paul remember his message, which was the message of repentance and conversion, and not only did he go about establishing churches, once he had established churches, he used those churches as a base for the expansion of the gospel throughout the rest of the neighborhood, the region, and the world. We see that especially in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a very important city. It's surprising, really, that Paul had not gone there before because he'd already been in Asia, that is, the Roman province of Asia, where Ephesus was located. Ephesus was the chief city, the most wealthy, and certainly the most attractive city in all of the Roman province. The reason Paul hadn't gone there earlier, as we've already seen, is that the Holy Spirit barred him from doing so. He was starting out in that direction after he left Galatia on an earlier missionary journey, but the Holy Spirit didn't allow him to go there. He turned the other direction. He wanted to go into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit by some means forbade his going there. So he pressed on to Troas, and there received the vision, which eventually took him over into Macedonia or Europe, and all of the ministry in the Greek cities flowed from that, including the great work at Corinth. But here, at last, he does go back to Ephesus. 
And so begins what was an extraordinary time of ministry and blessing in this city. This was a large city. It was a port city for one thing. Today the port has silted up and Ephesus is located three or four miles from the coast. As the port silted up, it lost its commercial advantage. But at the time Paul was there, it was at the height of its glory. It had about a third of a million people living there, which for an ancient city was a very large number of people indeed. It had a great theater, theater which has been excavated and which I've seen. A theater seated 25,000 people, so that's very large. The Rose Bowl, you know, seats about 100,000 people. So this was about a quarter of that size, very significant stadium or theater. And then Ephesus was most noted for its great temple of Diana or Artemis. This was known as one of the wonders of the ancient world. When it was finally discovered and excavated, it was found to be 25 feet beneath the surface of the ground because of all of the destruction and so on that had happened over the centuries. But at the time it was magnificent and large and it was the center of a great deal of superstition and cult prostitution which was so common in all of these great temples of antiquity. Ephesus, you will also remember, is mentioned first among the seven churches of Revelation to which the Lord Jesus Christ himself sent these letters. That is probably significant. It means that among all these other cities, all of which were important in that day, Ephesus was of first rank. And so it was throughout history for a long time. The church in Ephesus continued to be important and the city did as well. Now, Paul, as I said, began this great ministry in Ephesus and his work there is significant in providing us a pattern of how we might minister to the cities of the world today, including our own city. I want you to see a number of things that he did, some of them briefly and some of them at greater length. First thing we find that Paul did was establish an initial contact with the city and the people who lived there. That initial contact is described not in chapter 19, which we're studying, but in chapter 18. And the verses preceding, Paul had been at Corinth. He had been there for a year and a half. He was on his way back to Jerusalem and Antioch to report on his second missionary journey. But before he went back, on the way, he touched down in Ephesus, as it were. And he began to teach there, teaching in the synagogue. And he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul's motives were in this initial contact with the city, but I suspect, in view of the way it's described here, that it was something like a reconnaissance. He went to the city to see for himself what the city was like and what the potential seemed to be for establishing a church as a base for proclaiming the gospel throughout Asia. I assume that that's the significance of his ministry in the synagogue, verse 19 of chapter 18. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, the next verse tells us that they ask him to spend more time with them. In other words, he had a fairly decent reception in the synagogue here in this great city. That would be significant to Paul because in other places, in a very short amount of time, he engendered such opposition that he had to leave and in some cases was even driven out of the city. It didn't seem to be happening here. They wanted him to spend more time. He said, no, this is just a brief visit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. But he said, I will come back. 
And so that was encouraging. I think we're also to suspect that he was performing a reconnaissance, casing the land, as it were, by the fact that he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. If the case had not been promising, we would have expected him to say, oh, well, now nothing's going to happen here. Come on with me, let's go to Jerusalem, and then we'll start out again, and we'll find another place to labor. But instead of that, there seemed to be a good reception. So he said to them, why don't you stay here? I'm going to go, but I'll be back, and in the meantime, see what you can do. In the meantime, they did a great deal. Paulus came, they ministered to him. Paulus taught in the synagogue, and so the ground was prepared for what Paul came to do later. Now that leads me to the second point of Paul's strategy with this particular city, though it is a point that didn't have a great deal to do with Paul directly, and that's to say there was the ministry of Apollos. Now Paul had left Priscilla and Aquila behind, his friends. They would establish a base for him, be able to advise him where he might most effectively begin when he returned. But in the meantime, unknown to Paul, this man Apollos came to Ephesus. He began an effective ministry. We're told that he reasoned very wisely and effectively with the Jews about the Messiah. Now, he had some defects, apparently, at least this is the way I understand the story. He didn't know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who had been promised by John the Baptist, had come. That's a serious defect in a minister of the gospel. But it's one that was remedied by Priscilla and Aquila. And at any event, here was this man in a very effective way preparing the way for Paul's ministry. That's a significant thing in city work, that there should be other people there preparing the way and sharing in the labor. I find that in most work that we're called to do, we are very seldom ever called to do it entirely alone. I'm not saying that that's impossible. Certainly people have, very much alone, been carried off, sometimes against their will, into remote areas of the world. Like St. Patrick, Ireland, as a young boy captured by pirates, and there have witnessed and have been greatly blessed by God. I won't say that never happens. But quite often when we're called, we find that the area to which we're called is one that God has been preparing, not only in the sense that the hearts of the people there are prepared, but in the sense that other laborers are sent as well. I found that to be true personally at the time I came to Philadelphia. My wife and I discovered in those days that just about the same time that we had come to the city, the Lord brought in a whole group of young couples, much like ourselves, who were committed to the city, wanted to raise their children here, wanted to bear a witness, not just for a short period of time, but over a, a period of many years. And it was not only a joy to us, but an encouragement to see that God was doing that. An encouragement because Obviously, if God was leading other people there, then God was about to do something, and it was a privilege to be part of that kind of a strategic offensive and outreach. So, Apollos was the second point in Paul's strategy. The third thing is the thing that is chiefly described in chapter 19, and that is the church planting effort, along with his second-in-command, Timothy, his helper. It doesn't mention Timothy right at the beginning of the chapter, but we discover at the end that he's there when we read verse 22. Erastus was along as well. Now, the important point here is the nature 
of the ministry by which Paul went about to establish this church or churches. What did he do? Did he have a, a big rally to, to attract all the young people? Did he have a piano drop? I see a lot of blank faces. You've not been in young life. You don't know what a piano drop is. Piano drop is this. You get a helicopter and you attach a piano to it and you go up in the sky and you hand out leaflets and say you're going to drop a piano and then when you get all the young people to come because they love that sort of thing, you drop the piano and it breaks and makes a big noise and everybody can take a piece home with them afterwards and that's the way you make your contact. Well, the point I'm making is that he didn't do that at all. Paul had one strategy and that strategy was to teach the Word of God. He really did it. He did that everywhere. Everywhere he went, he went into the synagogue and taught them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And this one who had come in his own lifetime, who had lived, and taught, and died, and been raised from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And so he took the Old Testament and he taught it, showing what God had said in the Old Testament his Messiah would do, and indicating how Jesus did it. Now that's what he had done elsewhere, and that is certainly what he does here. I want you to see, first of all, that he did it to all kinds of people. That is, he taught all groups of people, all different types of people. It's interesting to go through this chapter and see the kind of people that were dealt with in this ministry. First of all, there were the disciples of John, John the Baptist. The situation here was similar to that of Apollos. They had heard of John and his teaching. They knew that they were to repent of sin, prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah because John was the forerunner and his preaching was a preaching of repentance and his baptism was a baptism of repentance and they had been baptized. It meant that insofar as John had a ministry, that ministry was effective in them and they had been prepared. But like Apollos, they hadn't heard yet that Jesus had come and so when Paul arrived in the city and began to teach. Here were these disciples who had been baptized, but not spiritually, only with water under repentance. And Paul began a special ministry with them. Those are the ones that had already been prepared. They were halfway there. And when he began to explain to them that Jesus had come, well, their hearts were ready for that, and they believed it at once. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and their lives were blessed in much the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in Samaria when the gospel first came to them. So here was a group of prepared hearts to whom the apostle came, and he ministered to them. And secondly, he went into the synagogue. Now, he had been there before. We saw that in the 18th chapter. They had said to him, please come back. And so when he got to Ephesus, he did come back. He went and began to minister among the Jews. And he was there for quite a time. It says he spoke there boldly for three months. Now we know when we compare this with what happened in other places earlier in the journeys that quite often in those earlier places he was only given a hearing for a matter of a few weeks. In other words, it really was a receptive audience, though as time went on, the attitudes of those who were unbelieving hardened and eventually Paul was forced to leave the synagogue. It doesn't tell us uh, about his results there. It speaks only of those who became obstinate. But we should believe, no doubt, that some did believe during the three-month ministry. And so here was a second group of people, the Jews, those who were his kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
And then thirdly, there were the Gentiles. They were the large majority living in the town of Ephesus. And Paul began a special ministry to them after he had been forced to leave the synagogue. It's interesting how he did it. We're told that when he left the synagogue, he went to the lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus. Tyrannus was a Greek philosopher, no doubt. He was a teacher, had a school, the word incidentally translated hall, as in the phrase lecture hall of Tyrannus. In Greek is actually the word school. It's where we get our word school, skole. So this was a man who ran a school. And yet there were times that he wasn't using it, and so he subleased it, no doubt at an attractive rate to Paul. And Paul went there and began to teach and let that be the base for his ministry to the Gentiles in the town and to whatever Jews and other people would come. When we go on, we find that he had a special ministry to those who were involved in the occult. We're going to see the results there. Perhaps most of the people were involved in the occult because when the Spirit of God began to move in a really great way, they turned from their occult practices. And then finally, toward the end of the chapter, we find the impact of the gospel upon the business class because this great business that they had of making statues and other votary objects for the great temple of Diana was hurt by what we would call a revival. And that means that an impact was being felt there in that community as well. Now, no doubt there were other groups of people, but here in this very short account, this very limited amount of space, Luke indicates what Paul did so far as the objects of his teaching were concerned. And then secondly, I want you to see that Paul taught for a long period of time. This is the direction that he had been moving. He had been staying longer and longer in the cities. When he was at Corinth, he was there for a year and a half. Now we're told in Ephesus, he stayed there two years. For a man who was an itinerant missionary who felt his calling to be the advancing of the gospel throughout the entire Roman world, that was a major time commitment. It would be the equivalent of many, many more years, perhaps a lifetime of ministry for you and me. There is an interesting note in the Western text of the book of Acts at this point. It's not in the majority of the manuscripts, so it's not included in our translations, and no doubt rightly so. But in the Western text, in the margin, there's a little note that says, when Paul lectured in the Hall of Tyrannus daily, he did so from 11 o'clock in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. That is from the 10th to the 5th hour. Now that is very interesting. That's a long period of ministry. 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon, 5 hours every day. No doubt the hot period of the day when the hall was not used by Tyrannus. Tyrannus would be there in the morning and perhaps lecturing in the evening as well. Paul said, could I use it in the middle of the day? But all the same, 5 hours, that's a long time and he did it every day. I don't think that means Monday through Friday. I think in terms of the culture of the day, that meant every day. They didn't take vacation. They never heard of a five-day work week or a 40-hour work week in those days. I think he did it seven days a week. And we learned something else as well, because later on in the 20th chapter, when Paul is speaking to the elders, he says that he supported himself while he was there in Ephesus. So I suppose in the morning when other people were working, Paul was working, working in his tents. 
At 11 o'clock, he knocked off and went over to the hall and began to lecture. And then he says here, also in speaking to the Ephesian elders, that he went from house to house, instructing them in the things of God. So I guess when the hall closed down for him or was taken over by the owner, at 4 o'clock, Paul started off at that point to teach in the homes. What is called in some forms of church polity, catechizing, that is, teaching the mothers and the fathers and the children the things of God. Is there anything else that Paul did? Oh, God blessed him in that miracles were done, but Paul didn't go there to do miracles. Miracles followed because of the blessing of the Holy Spirit. What the Apostle Paul did was go there to teach. And he taught regularly and in depth and effectively, and that's what God blessed as the gospel established itself in this city and then went from there throughout the whole of Asia. Now, I'm talking about Paul's strategy. I want to give two more things he did before I move on to the results. We've already seen that Paul's strategy was to make a preliminary visit. We saw the importance of Apollos as part of that strategy, though Paul had not planned that. We have seen this teaching ministry as he established churches. The fourth thing he did was conduct follow-up visits. Now, he had done that for the other churches as well. As a matter of fact, it was on such a journey that he stopped at Ephesus. He was going through the churches of Galatia, Derby, Iconium, and Lystra, and others. He had trouble getting back to Ephesus. As a matter of fact, he only came, in this case, to a city nearby where he called the Ephesian elders to him because as he returned to Jerusalem that time, he was arrested and then he was shipped to Rome. And as far as we know, we never got back. But his strategy was always to have visits back to the places where he had been to see how people were doing and to check up and to help and where possible to correct problems. And then the fifth part of his strategy, one with which we can easily identify was a strategy of written communication. And as he wrote letters, he provided lessons for the people. In this case, he wrote the book of Ephesians, a six-chapter or six-lesson course in what it really means to be a Christian and what we're to believe. That letter contains great doctrine. It talks about the sovereignty of God and salvation, rebirth, the role of the church, the fact that we are ordained by God to do good works, and it talks about all of the relationships between people in the churches, husbands and wives and slaves and masters and children and parents. Then finally, in the end, it has a great section about our spiritual warfare, no doubt because Paul realized how important that was in this particular community. Now, I ask the question, after a strategy like that and an investment in time like that, what were the results? See, if we are thinking about it in contemporary terms, we would say that we have set the objectives, we've developed the strategy, now we want a period of evaluation. And the question is, how did it work? What happened? Well, there were great blessings. First of all, there were miracles. That's the power of God was seen. The miracles were not done first to attract people. That's the error that many are making today, or trying to make today. The Word came first, God blessed the Word, and then the miracles followed, in this case through Paul as authenticating his message. Secondly, there were marked changes in the lives of the believers. 
They were involved, many of them, in the occult. And as the gospel was preached, as the lordship of Jesus Christ was emphasized, they saw increasingly that it wasn't possible for them to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and still even cling to these cult objects. There is one Lord, even Jesus Christ, and salvation is by him. They couldn't keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And so they saw that and they repented of their sin, says that explicitly, and then they brought their cult objects and had them destroyed, in particular burning the scrolls, the magic scrolls that contained the incantations publicly. Luke at this point puts in the total of the value of all these objects that were burned, 50,000 drachmas. It's always hard to make an equivalent from a New Testament figure involving money to our day. But so far as we can tell, a drachma was about a day's wage. The New International Version says that at the bottom in a footnote. Well, I don't know what we would say a day's wage today is, but perhaps using a rough figure, let's say $100. Now, if you put that into the formula, multiplying 50,000 times that, it comes out to $5 million. Now, that may be an exaggeration, but at any rate, it was a large sum of money. And what these Christians really did, as they heard the power of the gospel and recognized what they owed to Jesus Christ who died for them, was lay it on the line, as we would say. And anything in their lives that was holding them back, anything that indicated a divided allegiance, they laid aside. It wasn't the fact that they laid aside their money. It was these things that were claiming another allegiance. And if you have something in your life like that, it's very important that you get rid of it. I don't know what it may be, but whatever it is, if there's something you're hanging on to, you just don't want to give up, but you know it's not really consistent with following after Jesus Christ, you need to get rid of it as these Christians did. It's interesting that immediately after that, after this great, powerful movement of the Spirit of God among God's people, by which they confessed their sin and laid aside these objects, we read in verse 20, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now you need to contrast verse 20 with verse 10, which says, after Paul had been speaking in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the providence of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There's a difference between those two sentences. As a result of Paul's teaching, his consistent teaching and preaching, everybody heard. But that's not the same thing as saying that everyone believed. But here in verse 20, when the Christians laid it on the line and really took a stand for the gospel, laying all hindrances aside, we read in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And that meant that people not only heard it, they believed it and began to follow Christ. Well, there were a few more results. The very end of this section, verse 21 and following, you have a new vision of ministry for Paul. You see, one of the problems you sometimes have in churches is that when you have the blessing, people don't want to give it up. They don't want to go out. They don't want to serve elsewhere, even though the gospel is spreading effectively. And here Paul, in the very midst of what was the greatest blessing of his ministry, said, no, God has called me to go throughout the Roman world, and so I will. And he began to make plans, first of all, to go to Jerusalem, Macedonia, and Achaia. And then he had his mind set on Rome. And as we know, as he wrote to the Romans, he was thinking of going beyond Rome, even to Spain, which he may actually have visited. And then finally, the last result, 
there was opposition. All the gospel was spreading. People were believing. The power of the Holy Spirit was evident. But wherever that happens, there is opposition, and the opposition came. I'd conclude by saying, trust the Word of God and the Spirit of God to bless that in your ministry. We all have a ministry. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're to tell others about Him. You say, I need a new method. No, you don't need a new method. You need faithfulness in ministering the Word. I began by referring to Roger Greenway, and I find it interesting that that's the note on which he ends. One strikingly beautiful feature of Paul's farewell to the elders of Ephesus was his deep trust in the power of the Word and the Spirit to nourish and protect the Ephesian Christians in the days ahead. This ought to be the goal of every missionary. You and I are missionaries. We must teach the Word, and we must trust the Holy Spirit to bless it to those who need the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for our calling to be your ambassadors throughout the world, wherever we live, and to go about being a part of this great task of planting churches, churches in the cities, churches that grow strong and become a base for the expansion of the gospel in other areas. Grant, we pray that we might be found faithful, faithful in our testimony, and faithful in our lives for the sake of our Lord, even Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.